Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to continue our conversation on critical theory. Last week, we discussed critical theory with Dr. Scott Coley, a professor of philosophy. And this week, we are going to address critical theory from an ethical perspective. And joining me today to discuss this, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? Going well. Thanks for having me. And we have Logan Williams, who just recently completed a PhD at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Hey, John. Thanks for having me. And then we have a special guest. We have Dr. Matthew Arbo, who is Associate Professor of Theological Studies at Oklahoma Baptist University. He specializes in theological ethics and political theology. How's it going, Matthew? Hey, it's going well. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Let's go ahead and begin just by getting your uh, uh, understanding of what critical theory is. So um, I take uh, critical theory, I think the best way to think of it is historically. So to think about a, a bit about its origins um, gives it uh, gives, gives its, its kind of conceptual clarity. So historically, critical theory sort of emerges, I, I would say almost all of a sudden in the middle 20th century with continental Europeans who are kind of scattered all over the Western, Western Europe, but then particularly in the U.S. And I'm thinking um, particularly the Frankfurt schools, Horkheimer and Adorno. And um, what they do is they, um, they've appropriated important 18th, 19th, um, and also some classical philosophers to do philosophy a little differently. They're certainly in, this, in, this, in the sort of wake of Heidegger and, and being in time and the sort of philosophical reckoning with some of the questions that Heidegger is posing. But critical theory is, is fundamentally a question asking. I mean, of course, philosophy is like that anyway, but the, the idea of questioning fundamental institutions, questioning, questioning particularly the sort of material structure of society and culture. So they're taking um, particularly Marxist um, methods and Marxist theory and then kind of retooling them and making them a little bit more precise and sophisticated with respect, particularly to, to culture. Now, it's, I think, important to say that, they're, that the critical theorists that begin to emerge in the middle 20th century, yes, they're, they're deploying a kind of Marxist, um, and many of them um, sort of materialist perspective, but it's not the kind of Marxism that Americans tend to think of. And so it's not, we're not talking about sort of Trotskyan uh, Marxism, you know, we're, we're talking about, because these figures are all anti-totalitarian. They've seen what uh, has happened, uh, what communist communities have done and where it's, where it's been tried. They, they see the disaster of it. So they're thinking more about the methods and principles and the, uh, that could be used within critical theory. And then others begin to do that a little bit differently and becomes um, quite diffuse over the next several decades uh, following a sort of post-war era. So you get French figures like Deleuze and um, a few others that really do this, uh, that, that make use of the method rather helpfully. So that's, that's a kind of general historical. Now, what's, what's happened more recently with critical race theory is a, a way of using critical theory, particularly in questioning the sort of power structures of society. Uh, but then it advances that theory in other ways that aren't really in keeping with critical theory. And I've, I've kind of uh, argued this with others online before that critical race theory has, has connections to the, the history of critical theory, but in a lot of ways it's a sort of departure because it's sort of anti-traditionalist. Uh, could you expand on that a bit more about the differences between uh, their modern expressions and uh, earlier inceptional expressions? Yeah, so I, um, I'm most familiar with Horkheimer and Adorno 
and then um, with to a slightly lesser extent Deleuze, of course um, Foucault. But those continental, particularly the continental expressions, are focused specifically on the sort of architecture of culture and the way that society is erected power relations. Like if Foucault, of course, is uh, obsessed with this sort of um, diagnosis and, and critique. Um, I think Horkheimer and are a little bit more, um, honestly, a little bit more perceptive in, in some ways. Um, and you could even describe them as, as, I mean, when you read like Dialectic of Enlightenment, those, uh, that's almost a traditionalist kind of text. I mean, they're really interested in maintaining something about the sort of central uh, forces, sort of the gravity of culture, things, things like music, um, worry about technological innovation. I mean, there's uh, some essays that Horkheimer writes about traditional marriage that are kind of just striking. Um, even our neo-Puritans today would, would be like sort of praising these essays. But, but what happens um, over the next few decades, the critical theory becomes less focused on the sorts of questions and concerns uh, that Horkheimer and Adorno, for example, are, are concerned with. And so focus specifically on the, the kinds of power, power relations. So if, if Horkheimer and Adorno are thinking sort of bigger picture, larger cultural questions, uh, what has begun to happen, say, with something like critical race theory is to show how um, race relations are fundamentally about redevelopment of the master-slave dialectic or something to that effect. There's no doubt that there are power relations that deserve examining and critiquing um, what has happened, though, it's moved, particularly critical race theory, has moved from um, using critical theory to diagnose to developing a more positive account of how society should be restructured. And that's the move. This, was, this is Marx's weakness, too, honestly. Uh, Marx is an incredible, he's incredibly perceptive. Um, the critique uh, that, that Marx, the critiques that Marx often offers are uh, sometimes incredibly perceptive but when he when he turns to positive construction uh, and the sort of positive theory for the reconstruction of society it's it's sort of crass and uh, in the end it becomes sort of practically impossible and so you get a sort of a newer iteration of that it's one thing to critique society it's another thing to, to to try to propose theory for the reconstruction of society on entirely different terms um, that don't involve any kind of power so that's a little bit of a kind of meandering answer to that question. Um, you'd have to really, because uh, I'm kind of generalizing, you'd have to really sort of note how specific critical race theorists are themselves directly appropriating that sort of tradition. And I think it's sort of hodgepodge uh, in, in my reading of it. So maybe to just to isolate a few things you said, um, and you can confirm or deny whether or not these are helpful summaries. But basically, so for example, when people uh, analyze interactions between races in terms of oppressor oppress or analyzing things in, in terms of power dynamics uh, and focusing in on power, the power dynamics, for example, in between, between races. This is potentially only uh, not Marxist in a kind of holistic sense. It's Marxist and it, it, it aligns with Marx in the sense that it's, it's asking those kinds of materialist questions. Um, but it's not Marxist in the sense that necessarily to analyze society and interactions in that way it doesn't necessarily entail an entirely Marxist positive program. That's exactly right. And then also just uh, to clarify with history, the difference between kind of Frankfurt school originating uh, thinkers here and the focus of critical race theory is that in general, the, the Frankfurt school uh, inter alia in, in that area are, are questioning and poking holes at certain aspects of culture and society 
in general, uh, without necessarily an entirely deconstructionist program in the sense that we should just, you know, get rid of all of all kinds of hierarchical or, or structural relations, but also, uh, but then, but then in its more modern uh, expressions in critical race theory, it's a more focused analysis of, uh, you know, honing in on something like race, which is something that maybe the original Frankfurt school people wouldn't be asking or thinking about in, in, a, in a kind of focused sense. That's correct. Yeah, those are both, cool. those are both helpful. I think the critical, the critical theorists are, of course, early on focused specifically on how, what, what sort of things capitalism is doing to society and particularly what sorts of things market ideologies are doing to uh, different cultural conceptions. Then French, re- French reception, I think, of um, critical theory becomes a little more pragmatic. You get figures like, like I said, Foucault and Deleuze making specific applications, whether it's to psychoanalysis or to political institutions like criminal justice systems or, or whatever. But then when you get to the critical race theorists, as you're, as you're mentioning, you get the turn from diagnosis, critique, to, to, to more novel theoretical constructions uh, that have, you know, sometimes don't even really pay attention to the sorts of things that critical theory is paying attention to. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's one thing to just sort of point out, here's a power relation. Um, it's an entirely different thing to suggest positive ways to remedy uh, what, could, what could appear to be an adverse power relation. And what, um, do you, what do you see, what are those um, positive suggestions being made by uh, modern critical race theory? Uh, I mean, one, one of the, one of the uh, so there's a few, but one that comes to mind because it's been kind of uh, patted about um, in the social media universe is uh, sort of like workplace re-education programs. Uh, so the idea is to help particularly majority white employees understand not simply that they are in a majority, but they have held and do hold a position of power that is sort of necessarily subjugating of minority employees or something to this effect. You know, you could, um, this could be constructed or sort of versed in a number of ways. And so these, sometimes these education programs, these initiatives of consultants come in and help people understand uh, that they need, and it's, they don't use this language, but fundamentally need to repent of being uh, majority. And that the way to do that is through a very specific kind of psychological training program where a person presumably comes to see that they are white. They can apologize for that to themselves or to others. They can, in some ways, repent of it. And then, but then, this, this, but then beyond that, like once you get past the sort of psychological realization that you are majority white and that there are others who are not, and that this difference implies or ne- or even necessarily entails a sort of subjugation of the minority. What is a person to do? Are they there? Isn't anything beyond that? It's just it's just sort of psychological consolation, or maybe a, a kind of set of essentially kind of superficial practices that might put a person in a position to act in better faith. So that that really is the conclusion: you're either acting in good faith or bad faith. But that's one example of sort of workplace reeducation. Other ones, which are I think more more interesting and also more compelling, would be focused on things like housing or uh, education, particularly like resourcement of African American, particularly African American Hispanic school districts. You know, so what sorts of uh, textbooks do they receive? Are they new? Are they, do they have enough? You know, these sorts of questions. So 
or housing. So there, there are plenty of like, I think more fruitful applications, but those won't be, those aren't, those aren't obviously the products of critical race theory. Uh, those are much more the products of, of individuals or communities being engaged in the neighborhoods that they live in. And they, are, they aren't really, you know, the, they, aren't the, they aren't the fruit of critical race theory and its production of textbooks, you know, or its re-education programs. But, so there's, there's other examples I could use, but those, those are a few that come to mind. You know, that's something that I've noticed in talking to friends and different people. Um, I think you draw a helpful distinction there talking about how there's Marxist theory and Marxist diagnostic tools, and then there's more of a positive Marxist program. And those two things are not necessarily the same. And, and it is possible to resource one without resorting to the other. And in a similar way, we talked about last week how even in critical theory, there's more of the philosophical concepts, and then there's the activism. And the two need to be distinguished. They're not necessarily that one leads to the other that they can be equated. Um, so I think that's a really helpful distinction that you give us. And, and even the examples, one thing that I noticed in talking about more of critical race theory and particularly the activist side, uh, looking at the example of the workplace education that you gave. When I found myself in a predominantly secular institution that was very much engaged in the activist side of things, one of the things that I noticed was how fundamentalistic it struck me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very normative, very dogmatic. It, and when you think of secularism as being this place where we don't legislate morality or we have only public discourse and we avoid, avoid normative assertions, there's so many normative assertions that are going on that are even fraught with terms like repentance and mm-hmm. things like that that seem very odd when you think about secular discourse. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this turn and what this is saying about secularism (laughs) and this turn to normativity that we're really seeing in this movement. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think in in a lot of ways, um, it's something I meant to allude to earlier. I think that critical theory over like, say at the turn of the 20th, 21st century, has been sort of liberalized. It's just been kind of gobbled up into the, the sort of liberal project, which is fundamentally um, emancipatory. So once once you see once you see that that liberalism is an emancipatory project, you can it makes sense of a lot of activism. So what liberalism is interested in is finding it, it, it's good at this identifying subjugated people or classes of individuals who do not have the sort of access to opportunities, you know, if you want to use Rawls language or something similar, that majority citizens do have access to. And, you know, what what I think happens is that you, I mean, there's a way of constructing this theologically where activism becomes the the sort of, it is a method of secular evangelization, where you really do want a kind of conversion. And the the idea is to convert activists, essentially, um, to specific programs of further, emancipa- further emancipation. I think the most vivid example of that today, to, this is just a, a point of application, is with, with transgenderism, uh, that, that there is a particular class of individuals who need to be emancipated and activists are lent and you know, strongly inclined to try to pursue that. But I, I mean, I, I totally agree that there's a kind of theological um, 
uh, uh, underground, like subsurface theological power and conceptuality at play with the, the particularly the, the activist side. And it'll, I mean, in that respect, it will always be focused on the ends for the activism will always be what I mentioned before that it, it will be this emancipatory project. It, it is getting people or classes of individuals out of whatever, whatever subjugation has been identified, but it's just, you know, not getting to play on the sports teams they want or discrimination in the law in the workplace or something similar. Uh, that's not to say uh, that some of those aspirations uh, for particular individuals are all themselves wrong or flawed. Um, it's, it's, as you say, it's the whole um, package. It's the whole sort of picture that uh, a person or that, that particular activist is bought into. Yeah, I, I guess so. What you're saying is that you're, you're just providing a kind of analysis, overall analysis of how these interactions and movements work. Not necessarily to say that all forms of activism are bad. That's correct. Or, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Right. I mean, activism is like, you know, it, these, these come up in like Twitter profiles, you know, that, that someone's an activist and it, that's just, it's sort of like a, um, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a badge of honor. The question of course is like, for what? I mean, you could be a cycling advocate, <laughs> activist, you could be a number of activists, but, but activism is, I, th- I think, a very interesting and underexplored moral political topic uh, in, in terms of what is entailed in it, uh, what motivates it because it is very much a part of the sort of liberal project. And there's, a, there's an open question, like, I mean, is there, is, uh, is there an end, you know, is there a terminus where you never have subjugated people? And what if it turns out to be classes of people that the activists never, never thought could be subjugated, you know, instead of like contradictions that are involved in it, but that's kind of another. Mm. Activism stands in contrast in our minds to quietism political, social quietism. So kind of this apathy and sitting back and not really doing anything to better society. So there's, there's a bit of an angst too, in, in the sense of, am I being complicit in something that's going on by my quietism? So is that propelling me to this type of activism def- defined in these ways? I, w- I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I think so, uh, so, something what you just said at the outset struck me with, you know, with particularly online, like social media activism, which which gives a person the the strong sense that they are doing something when they voice their opinion or mm. they retweet or something else, when the when the real work of activism is much more difficult. And you, know, you could you could hear behind the scenes when particularly way when the uh, when protests erupted, um, many sort of on the ground advocates and activists were really worried because they had made very slow gradual inroads with the mayor's office and with councils and with the police forces mm. and those negotiations and um, partnerships had been ongoing and delicate. And uh, you know, the protest draws a tremendous amount of attention, but it also can, can draw un- unwanted and undue attention and a kind of social force. That's really just more um, sort of social protest, mm-hmm. uh, social media protest. Um, and that's not activism. Um, activism has to be embodied on the ground forms of work. Uh, forms of labor. That's really what it has to be as a kind of labor on behalf of an individual or class. But social media is this sort of perfect function and conduit for sort of faux, I would describe it as sort of faux mm-hmm. activism that doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really activism. It just is sort of personal consolation for the person who feels grievances, but doesn't want to do anything about them. Mm-hmm. So I guess there, you're saying that there are forms of activism that are 
can be described as such, but are not actually effective in achieving the goals that they describe themselves as wanting to achieve. So if you want the liberation of subjugated people, protests might raise awareness and can be described as such, but are not actually effective in achieving the goals that they describe themselves as wanting to achieve. So if you want the liberation of subjugated people, um, protests might raise awareness and protests might demonstrate that there is a critical mass uh, of people who do uh, believe that subjugation of black people, for example, is widespread in America and bad. But the question that you're asking, maybe from, we might say, a critical perspective is, what might, is there any evidence that this shows that this is effective in achieving its own goals? And what might actually, pe should people be doing instead or in addition to these things to achieve those goals? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it could, uh, not only might it not have the effect of achieving the goals, it might actually be, be the opposite. It could, in mm -hmm. effect, over time, be contradictory to the effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've also noticed that there's so many abstractions that are going on right now, which does strike me as being having as being contradictory to critical theory in and of itself, where everything in society is just reduced to a really broad sweeping abstraction. And, and by abstract categories, I mean referring to the black community in general, to the white community in general, or to even more abstract concepts like whiteness is is something that's very, very abstract and depersonalized. And even activism, for example, like you were saying on social media, we think we're being activists, but really we're just being part of this abstract category that's clicking like on certain things mm -hmm. or retweeting certain things, not actually making any concrete on the ground difference that often requires, as you were saying, that, that kind of delicate work of relations that happen in societies that are transformed, you know, from the ground up type of thing. And we understand one another in terms of increasingly abstract categories. I know from, from a Kierkegaardian perspective, that gets really bizarre really quickly <laughs> because you lose the, the concrete living individual in the abstract category, uh, this impersonal ideal, right? And so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a bit about, from a Christian ethicist perspective, what is that, I mean, this is obviously a huge question, what is the relationship between the individual and the universal, but, but more, more particularly, how should, we, how should we think about the individual versus the group relation? Because both are important from a Christian perspective, and what is that relationship there? Yeah, the, um, I mean, the individual group relation in Christian ethics is, um, is a perennial question. I mean, it, this is one that um, Augustine's dealing with in his reception of, uh, uh, of you, know, you know, antiquity and classical philosophy. It's one that the medieval church is less, is slightly less concerned about, but um, certainly concerned with universals. But I think, I mean, you know, pushing, pushing forward into the sort of later modern era, the shadow that Kant casts across the, particularly the 20th century, it really up until like the 60s or 70s, even the 80s is, is pretty significant. And of course, the, that, that means that there's a preoccupation with the individual decision. What will the individual do uh, and based on, and, and on what moral principle and what sort of moral precept? And there's, there's interest in, in the universal uh, and that's particularly applied to how the universal, that the human being, uh, the individual will decide. 
And I think what's interesting, um, I say all that because what's interesting is that um, the Puritanism of the modern era um, hasn't really subsided. Um, I think Puritanism is uh, very much what lies behind uh, much contemporary evangelicalism, uh, particularly its moral framework uh, and its preoccupation specifically with personal purity being the sort of person who's unstained, who is holy and so on. Now, that, that's not, I'm not offering that as a criticism, but particularly Puritan and, and therefore a sort of evangelical ethics has, has tended to be preoccupied with individual decision and with the sort of principles that apply to some one person's uh, decision. It might, might be the golden rule or it might be the love command or something similar. Um, and so evangelicalism has not been very good at social ethics, uh, hasn't really, I mean, it, only to the extent that they're worried about the, what they take to be more foundational principles. So uh, that kind of helps explain the focus, a uh, sort of earnest focus on sexual ethics, particularly. Now, the, the reasons for that are, are partly Kantian, but I, think, but I think it's much deeper than that. It has to do with a, a particular reading of the Bible that has it's actually a social reading of the Bible that has um, kind of groomed a, a, a kind of intensely individualist ethic to, to significant neglect of, of Christian social ethics. Now what's happened in more, much more recent decades is that um, evangelicals have been reading more widely. And I think the, the kind of complexity of society is forcing uh, evangelical churches and broader evangelical communities to reckon with that. Now, I've, I've taken the question kind of and applying it to a specific subset of the church, um, a particular kind of grouping of the church. But the, um, I, I think if anything, what particularly evangelical church has um, become most interested in is how it as a society is in relation to other, what they take to be other societies or other communities, kind of latching on the latter part of your question. And in some ways, it's, it's kind of giving in to um, the, this sort of Nietzschean construction of society where um, there really is a sort of vying for specific kinds of leverage or power or say. And I, I think, you know, the evangelical church has, has maybe understood that, understood the importance of power, but um, at least in terms of the group relation, I think, I mean, I guess, so um, I read a book a couple of years ago um, called The Fourth Dimension. And um, I, I, the, the book is somewhat interesting, but it gave me a, the, the important idea of the, the basic theory of the book is that uh, every human being, uh, we live in, in sort of three dimensions, but we also have the fourth dimension, which the virtual, which our online lives have created. So we have a sort of fourth element. And I, I kind of like the way that that theory complicates, um, or may, maybe put it differently, it helps us, helps us better understand what it means to live in the 21st century in a world so virtually connected. And I, I mentioned it because what particularly social media has done as intensified the abstractions that Amber mentions, um, where it becomes really, really difficult for people to even recognize um, that the abstractions have um, deepened in the way that they do. So particularly in the, in the way of seeing society as the arrangement of particular interest groups. And that's a distinctly capitalist construction of things where there are different classes of individuals vying for a particular, they, they won't call them goods, they'll call them interests, uh, but what they take to be their good. 
And what happens in this sort of competitive environment, which is how particularly how social media constructs it, um, is you have a vying that is that feels to many like it's zero sum. Um, it's not, in other words, it's not just the case that a particular class is gets equal opportunity. It is that everyone respects that this particular class not only has this opportunity, but they will get a certain kind of uh, respect. They'll get a certain kind of recognition. There'll be it'll, it'll be more. Uh, there has to be a kind of full-on buy-in, and uh, and in a lot of ways, this is sort of the conditions of some theory that uh, that had been kind of that have been offered in late late 20th century with figures like Rawls um, and has, has become much more mainstream. Even though we take ourselves to be a deeply socially connected society, actually the very material uh, we use to connect is actually uh, corroding our social bonds. Uh, so the like, way I describe this sometimes to my students is uh, never have we felt more connected and never have we felt more alone. That uh, social media has promised a particular kind of connectivity and really we aren't actually that, that, that it's not at all the case seems to me actually quite the opposite social media has done a tremendous amount actually to degrade and corrode social bonds um, in really important ways of course we can talk to each other like this on uh, zoom we can you know um, connect with people easier all over the globe of course that kind of kind of superficial material connection that that's not uh i wouldn't call this superficial i mean is that that's not the kind of bond that i'm talking about it's much more um, about the very conditions by which uh, we communicate with one another and it it happens that these means do the work of abstracting and they can't do the opposite mm -hmm. so that, that means that raises the hard moral question about well what are we going to do you know, on what basis will we communicate if it seems that as though this, those social conditions are set in a way that requires us to continue to perpetuate the problem, if, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So Matt, what you say about um, breaking down society into interest groups, is, and you're arguing that's essentially a capitalistic way of, of viewing society. Um, it strikes me there might be a corollary of what you're saying in the way that activism, you might say quote unquote activism, depending on uh, your perspective on the issue, but activism on social media looks like saying things as as loud as possible. Not not all the time, but in many occasions, it's saying things as loud as possible in all caps, saying it and retweeting people who are saying it. It seems to me that there's the way social media, the way people engage in activism in social media, sometimes can be, in many cases, can be really helpful and analytical. And I've learned a lot from, for example, being on Twitter, but also it can be sometimes just uh, reflective of a Nietzschean will to power. I mean, it isn't, it isn't the case that social media is the power by which this social decomposition um, and fragmentation has occurred. It's just exacerbated it. And now that it is one of the principal means by which social discourse takes place, it is now irreversible. I mean, it seems irreversible. Um, and if those are the conditions of discourse, it doesn't seem to me, so, so back out of it. I've, I've been on Twitter nine years, according to my, my recent update. And I, I, it caused me to reflect, like, what has happened in nine years, aside from me, you know, gaining more followers and uh, having what seemed like often fruitless discussions with people and, you know, retweeting memes and, and so on and so forth. But like what, what is the, what is my purpose in making use of this platform? 
And I mean, I think anyone rightly tries to think about that, how to handle that, uh, what they're doing online prudently and rightly. What social media doesn't encourage is, is that kind of reflection. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't encourage um, and doesn't foster any kind of virtue. In fact, it wants to, you know, it's constantly used to sort of name where people are trying to, you know, signal their virtue. So I, I want to say that the powers of degradation of social decomposition are much deeper. Um, I, I wouldn't even want to say that they're necessarily like finally sourced foundationally in capitalism. It's more of the spirit that's behind it. It's the sort of conception of social life which which demands winners and losers, and which capitalism is the material in, in some sense the material manifestation. That the the sort of spirit of capitalism is is much much deeper and much and in, in many ways much more vicious because of because of that particular that not not just that particular uh, principle that's there sort of central to it. So what what's what yeah so what I want to say to clarify is that social media is just a very very powerful vehicle for that decomposition. And um, I, I guess maybe it seems to me, I, I'm not on other forms of social media because I can barely handle Twitter sometimes and I've had to back out some lately, um, is that, is that dis discourse has become worse in the last two or three years. And I'm not trying to correlate that with any specific political development or anything. It's just a kind of general perception that there's a way of being online. You can kind of capitalize those. <laughs> and that is very much about personal brand. Um, it's about team relations. And it's not fundamentally about persuasion. It's not, it's not in the end. I mean, if that happens, it happens in such small iterations and microcosms that it's hard to even detect. Now, I'm, I'm sort of laboring the point about social media for a minute because it does so much to mask the normativity of social life. Uh, so the abstractions that Amber mentioned early on, you know, it, it's, I mean, someone is sort of wants to mention that there could be something sort of in nature to appeal to some natural principle. And I'm, I'm not a natural law theorist, but if someone wants to do that, it would just seem like an offense. But the nature of the discourse is such that those sorts of moral principles, the moral norms are, are kind of uh, suppressed and masked. You know, I, I think Logan makes a great point in bringing up the Nietzschean will to power in the way that we engage on social media, in discourse on social media. And kind of just that really loud assertion and, and who can be the loudest and who can say it in the loudest, most shocking or most memorable or whatever way. Mm -hmm. But I, I also find that that is the strategy that's adopted by many evangelicals as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering, if, which, of course, any evangelical would probably die if they heard that they're participating in a Nietzschean will to power. <laughs> um, but, but there's so many uh, connections here in, in how we assert, particularly even coming back to the topic of critical race theory in particular, kind of a, a mainstream evangelical response that's been going on in the last several months, especially, tends to kind of just be this like, well, no, truth is objective, period, full stop, all caps. <laughs> so yeah. therefore, there cannot be any kind of perspectives that are going to give us a nuanced perspective on or a nuanced view on what's actually going on, because truth is just this universal, dispassionate, objective thing that's out there. Um, and we just kind of assert those kinds of statements as a way to push back or critique critical theory, but in reality, it just kind of fosters this battle zone of the Nietzschean will to power and each side kind of asserting over and against the other. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think I agree that um, many evangelicals will not want to 
accept. <laughs> we'll, we'll throw a bit. Uh, yeah, they'll they'll be they, they won't want, they they won't be too happy about the suggestion or warm to the suggestion that they're that that they can be Nietzschean, but they but they okay. absolutely can be, and um and it and it happens exactly the way that you described. But the different one difference being that they will. Uh, they will have ready ready principles to appeal to to excuse the behavior, and so and they could be they could seem entirely noble uh, that I'm defending the faith or I want to represent you know Jesus to other people you know that whatever their whatever the reason they could say that it's an even that it's an evangelistic reason, but that, of course those are you know in the end many of those will be ends justifying the means sorts of arguments that is well i'm wanting to be evangelistic and so whatever sort of my mode of behavior my mode of conduct and and discourse is you know not really all that relevant and or they'll just you know ignore that sort of thing but there's there are ways of kind of very delicate christian ways of of kind of explaining specific kinds of behavior or excusing it without accepting you know particular truths like the one you're you're, like the one you're mentioning Mm. I think the uh, evangelical posture in this regard, in terms of participating in a Nietzschean will to power, is uh, you know probably something that they learned perhaps in in you know more fundamentalist circles where you know pastors will you know pound the pulpit as hard as they can and uh, you keep pounding it until everybody agrees. You know, I know I certainly grew up in that sort of a, a context and it seems to me that a lot of the rhetorical moves on social media in evangelical circles is just a sort of, you know, digital version of that. And just sort of, um, yeah, if you, if you assert it as, as um, strongly as you can, then it makes it true. And um, I think mm. there's quite a bit of that in, uh, evangelicalism as a result, it might even be sort of in our kind of you know post fundamentalist DNA. Yeah, that's abso- that's absolutely true. It has a long history, uh, and I think that's right. Going back even to early 20th century uh, fundamentalism, and one of the worst things that happened, I think, even in, the, in more recent centuries, is that the, the the messaging, particularly from like news media, but 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 elsewhere too, was uh, to evangelicals is that it's a block. You know, particularly it's a political block. It's a voting block. And over time, that mess, initially there may have been some resistance to that, but that resistance has since broken down. And now one of the primary ways in which um, evangelicalism, capital E, understands itself is as a political block, as, a, as having a, it now has, a, has an acknowledged kind of power that it didn't seem to have. And you could try to fix a point of, uh, at which that became real and you know, with Karl Rove and Bush administration, there's a number of ways, places you could try to fix that, but there's no doubt that it's happened now. And it has, it has changed evangelical self-understanding. Um, and it hasn't, um, it hasn't had the, let's say it hasn't had the corresponding effect of making its witness more winsome. Well, and the, the contradictory element here is that the more evangelicals practice that kind of assertion of truth and a, a, and a concept of truth that is directly connected to power, whether they maybe realize it or not. But there is this concept of standing up for truth and fighting for truth and the advancement of truth. And it's a way of seeing truth as this thing that's got that's going to win and it's going to assert itself over and against mm-hmm. other things. And that very idea is what critical theory critiques. <laughs> yep. it's, the, it's the power structure that it calls into question. And so I, I think that in terms of 
and evangelical engagement with critical theory, which has excesses um, and internal contradictions as it's been pushed in different directions, as mm. we've discussed here, probably the worst way <laughs> to critique critical race theory right now is to practice that kind of assertive truth mm -hmm. connection to power. Because a critical theorist is going to say, you're proving my point. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it might make the voter block feel more secure internally, but it's not going to actually persuade anybody in society by doing that. And, and you really do kind of prove the critique of critical theory in doing that. That is such a good point. So how do we, how do we help people see that? Can we help people see that? I mean, you know, Matthew, you've been, you know, very articulate in describing this uh, inability to persuade online, right? I think one of the things that happens is we underestimate, you know, people's desire not to be wrong, right? Nobody wants to ag agree that they have been wrong about something, especially online in the most depersonalized form of communication as, as you've described. So how, how, how could we uh, help people see that, that that sort of assertive posture is just I mean, really a case in point. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, uh, so when it comes, so I'll kind of focus the example of something like race, uh, which is a discussion we're having now. And uh, kind of, so it's sort of indirectly relevant, relevant to critical race theory. You know, when I talk about race, like with my uh, students, um, I learned early on that there's a very quick defensiveness about discussions about that, particularly in majority white classrooms in mine, because of where I've taught for other reasons, as a, that's typically my classroom is um, almost exclusively white majority. There's a defensiveness. Um, and one reason is because none of them, none of my students will believe that they're racist. You know, none of them will believe that they harbor prejudice about their ethnicity or race and, uh, and, and don't want to be told otherwise. You know, no one wants to be told that they're racist. That's one of the worst things, you know, you could say about someone today, uh, lots of strong feelings about that, that term and the sorts of commitments that are associated with it. So um, one of the things I've tried to do, and this is, I'm just using a pedagogical example because you've asked about the how and in classroom, this is how I've been trying, <laughs> is um, to, help, to help particularly my students see um, how as um, the white majority, to try to help my students see that there are in the kind of material structuring of society ordering that is disadvantageous, put it the mild way, disadvantageous um, to minority communities. And I give them examples of that. I can, you know, I'll, I'll give them examples about uh, capital uh, punishment and, and, um, and sentencing disproportions. And there's all kinds of, and I, I'll just give them material evidence, redlining, where particular districts were, you know, if, if listeners don't know what redlining is, it's where uh, particular districts within cities were zoned so that particular properties would be devalued over other ones and insurance uh, costs would be different. So there, there was, there's several obvious vivid education is another one where minority communities do not have the same opportunities for, for pretty obvious reasons and have found it very difficult to get access to capital as well. I'll talk about that and the difficulty of finding, uh, finding access to capital in a capitalistic society. So when, when I point out and they can begin to see that there actually is in the, in the very arrangement, and, and, I mean, my, my students are 18 to 21 years old. They don't have a lot of life experience. They don't know about, you know, uh, insurance adjustments. They don't really know about how school districts function. Uh, but when they begin to see it, 
Right. And they see like, well, you know, actually they can, they can see like, they can think about their own neighborhoods, you know, maybe, maybe their, maybe the neighborhood was gated and they never saw minority people come in. They didn't have minority students in their schools. They, they begin to see that there's something in the sort of, there's latent in the story of society that they've entered that they just didn't see before. And I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, I'm like, a, you know, a grand sage that eliminates, you know, provides enlightenment to the students. But what, what, I, what I do want to mention is that it really has just been saying, here's, here are a couple of examples about how society has worked. And here's what some of the implications have been. Now, yes, there, of course, there are these important spiritual realities. Of course, there are individuals and in, in cla whole classes of people who harbor racial prejudices. You also need to reckon with the fact that there, there, are, there are parts of our society, that's the material operations of our society that um, make it difficult for minority communities and minority people to do the same sorts of things that you do without thinking about it. And if we can get land on that spot, if they can just kind of see that there's something to this, that's like a beginning. So I think it really does, uh, it doesn't just this, but it's a good start is fairly decent knowledge about, about how um, some of the basic mechanics of society work, particularly where we see more acute injustices. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to disc discourse as a kind of different example, um, maybe it means not participating in the discourse, capital D. Uh, maybe it means doing something different. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it means uh, being a good neighbor <laughs> and yeah. volunteerism and uh, doing things that are more sustainable and um, contribute to social goods in different ways. So those are, those are examples, but that how question is one I think that's really fundamental and that actually can get us going in all kinds of directions. But I wanted to focus it, the first part of the answer is particularly on race since that was a, kind of our subject here. Right. Following that, I mean, there might be really easy or not easy answer to this, I'm not sure. But other than self-protection, what is it about maybe more historically has led evangelicalism to be so prone to be resisting the idea that racism and activism in whatever form uh, to fight racism uh, is real and something that people should do? Uh, obviously, yeah. So obviously we get to say, well, they're white. Evangelicals are mostly white. So they don't want to feel uncomfortable. But are there, are there any more, are there more historical reasons for this? Because in other areas, obviously evangelicals are fine with forms of social activism, like the activism, like um, protesting outside of Planned Parenthood or something. That's a great question. Um, that, and I'll give it a swing at, at, to give at least the beginning of an answer. And um, I, I think part of the answer lies in evangelicals um, being at the very least conflicted, if, if not um, horrified, at the, the sort of stain of racism in particularly the modern era um, that many evangelicals, even prominent leaders, were slaveholders or were interested in perpetuating the institution of slavery or were a part of or supporters of Jim Crow laws or uh, opposed uh, the Civil Rights Act or school desegregation, that there's a there's an ugly history to particularly even fundamental, we'll just say uh, generally evangelical. There, there's, there, there's, there's a history to evangelical um, understandings of race that are, that are bad, that, uh, you know, that deserve 
denunciation. And that's part, that's part of the evangelical history. So that's one part of it. Uh, just not wanting to reckon with that, not wanting to come back to it. Um, and, and so therefore wanting to say, you know, do things like appealing to resolutions at the denominational level or something else to sort of say that we've gotten past some of that. Uh, that we're not the same the people. The Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not the same people. We don't have those attitudes. I'm not racist and that kind of thing. But that's fine, right? And then there's another element in evangelicalism. This is a bit of a generalization of wanting to provide only, as it put that point, only a spiritual explanation to everything. All right. Now that is uh, an important element to any explanation of, of of some phenomenon from a distinctly Christian vantage point, but you also, you know, you also need to take the full step with Augustine and sort of say that yeah, we begin maybe with the spiritual insight, but we're going to we're going to also say what sorts of material effects it has. So Augustine will say something about the demonic and warfare, and make that point of connection in ways that um, he thinks are Pauline. But maybe the Pauline people can remark on that. But so that's another where the a spiritual explanation of a phenomenon, say like racism, you know, that it's just people. There, there are a lot of lost people or that people haven't been formed by the Holy Spirit to a sufficient extent. Those are, those are, those are examples, but they're, they're nowhere near enough in the way of explanation as to why there could be coordinated, prolonged institutional or, or systemic racism in the sense that there are institutions that are ordered in a way that either uh, disenfranchise minorities or do not properly or fairly help them or assist them. So those are those are two. There's the so the stain of the past, but also offering almost exclusively spiritual explanations for phenomenon. Those are two particular things with evangelicalism uh, that come to mind. I think you could say a whole lot more uh, in terms of why it is that there's a reluctance to name the material. I mean, I think you you could make an argument that there's there's just sort of in the lifeblood of contemporary evangelicalism an opposition to sort of any kind of material diagnosis, and you could say that that's maybe. And in, in, the, uh, in the train of um, sort of post-Billy Graham church, you know, Graham was a great opponent of Marxism. And really since then, all of evangelicalism has used Marxism as a, as, uh, a kind of whipping boy. You know, anything, anything could be Marxist and anything that is Marxist is fundamentally wrong. There's nothing about, you know, that Marx has ever said or done or anything. You know, Marxism becomes a kind of bogeyman. Um, and so yeah, I think uh, 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 an that's an explanation that it need more development, but it's certainly possible that evangelicalism is, as a result, um, want to um, accept what could be a material explanation or a material critique, hence opposition to something like critical race theory. Yeah, Marxism is a, is a boogeyman and a whipping boy, um, but it seems to me that most of the people who uh, are the loudest on social media probably couldn't even define it or really huh. tell you much about it. it. It is just such a buzzword, but it's kind of contentless, it seems. It's, it's mostly just sort of like uh, when you're playing that game of operation, you've touched the side and it's buzzing and it's going off. And, and that's all you need to know. That's all you need to know is that, is that you, you've, you've, hit, you've hit the bounds and, and game over, you know? It's just, it's just this kind of reaction, like in that game of operation, there is nothing specific content-wise um, that, that seems to be uh, inherent in discussions about it online, at least. Marxism functions as a as a as a boogeyman, but also as a kind of badge of honor uh, for some people saying, "Oh, I'm a Marxist." Um, and a friend of mine uh, who teaches uh, here at Durham, uh, a bunch of a few of his, his students, 
uh, claimed uh, that they were Marxists uh, and their first years. And so, and he was just like, oh man, that, no, you don't, you don't know anything about Marx. And uh, he said, oh, okay, you're a Marxist. Who's Engels? <laughs> and they had no idea who he was. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so uh, I, I just think that this, this, this has become, um, you know, a, a label that people can throw on things they like or don't like, whether themselves mm -hmm. or others. Or, yeah. um, it's lost all. Um, and even when people identify something as Marxist, it's like, surely that someone who says racism exists isn't saying therefore we should destroy private property <laughs> right like <laughs> right um so it's just, it's just kind of a it seems to me like not a really um helpful what what are you what are you saying about someone when you call them a marxist what marxism entails lots of things yep Mm -hmm. yeah, what I hear evangelicals doing is just to dismiss them, you know, that they, they aren't right. deserving of attention. They're not deserving right. of engagement. That's, that's fundamentally how it's used as I see it without any distinction between you know, things like Marxism and socialism. It's all, it's all gobbled together. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, once, once the label fits, you don't, you don't, they don't even deserve your attention anymore. Mm -hmm. That same thing. I mean, that's the, the CR critical race theory is another example, you know, it's just a, a kind of further extension of it. You know, once it becomes a thing, you know, once it becomes say a worldview, um, and you see that it's that it's an ideology, then you can just dispense with it. You don't have to. You don't need to engage with it on its own terms. It becomes a kind of chimera in that way. Of course, it's not. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not fundamentally in itself a worldview. Um, ideology is much more complicated than is often rendered by discussions about critical race theory. Mm. Um, but. Well, this has been a very wonderful discussion. I think we've covered quite a bit of ground and I don't know if there's a, maybe a final word that you'd like to provide for us, uh, Matthew, as just kind of a, a way forward for evangelicals thinking about uh, critical race theory activism, these sorts of things that we've discussed. Yeah, I, I think one thing I wanna say is that I'm aware of no generally evangelical ethicist or theologian who endorses critical race theory. I've, I've, I've not, no one I, I've read, I see no one in print um, has ever advocated it for it as like the way to think about race, you know, as the way to think about the construction of society. Maybe someone can introduce me. I've asked someone to show me where evangelicals are in print, you know, or on record saying something like that. So I think it's been made, in some ways it's been made into a kind of thing that's haunting evangelicalism. And I, I sometimes joke about that because there's so many things haunting evangelicalism online, mm -hmm. you know, you, so many things, so many ghosts around the corner, so many things <laughs> threatening the life of evangelicals, you know, when really they've got it good, you know, especially if you compare right. to the early church. But um, it's, it's not what it's often billed to be. Um, and if we can step back for a second and take a deeper breath, we can actually see that there's something in the questions that they're asking that are deserving of a little more attention right. and care. And uh, we, can, we can take the insights as they come, um, if we're willing to do that kind of thinking and listening. But if we want to throw virtue aside and simply you know, dispense with ideologies that other people tell us are ideologies, then of course, that's always a possibility. Uh, but I think, um, from, at least from a distinctly faithful uh, Christian vantage point. It, it means exercising a bit more prudence and justice and uh, engaging with, uh, with, with what basically the insights of critical race theory are, such as they are, right, without, without doing wholesale dismissal. And I think that's, um, that's how I think, you know, Augustine is a good model for that. You know, take the first five books of like the City of God, where 
he's, he's essentially reconstructing the, you know, the, the Latin mind, the Roman mind, um, and, uh, and, and polytheism. So, I mean, there's a way of engagement there on, um, on plain display where, well, here, here is how, um, you know, Roman polytheism works. Here's the mind of the Roman Mm. And then, and then engaging with it on its own terms. Now, that's uh, that's just one model. I'm not suggesting everybody needs to be Augustine, but I, I, I'm just suggesting that that's the that's the prudent and charitable way mm. of trying to assess it without wholesale dismissal. Let's see yeah. where the insights are. Truth, right? Right, right. I I I appreciate that uh, as as a final word for us. You know, I, I like to think about intellectual hospitality. You know, can we entertain ideas? Yeah, that's good. You know, and and I think that's that's a that's a helpful way to to put it. And calling us to Augustine is always a always a good thing. So thank you so much, Dr. Arbo, for joining us uh, today. Appreciate your insights and and your um, conversation with us. Uh, thanks to Logan and Amber as well for uh, joining in on this conversation. Thanks, guys. Good discussion. Thank you. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.